Hi everyone, this is Derek Harp, the founder and chairman of the Control System Cybersecurity Association International, or as we call it, just CSEC. CSE is a 501c6 nonprofit workforce development association dedicated to helping grow, support, and sustain the professionals charged with the cybersecurity of control systems. We're specifically talking about those systems that have pumps and valves and actuators, real cyber to physical moving parts, and control nearly every aspect of our modern connected industries. Thank you for tuning into the podcast. It is my hope you find it inspirational or motivating or revealing or informative, and perhaps at times even a little entertaining. Take care and be well. Hi, this is Derek Harp, the founder and chairman of CSA and the host of the CSA podcast show. I've got another great guest on uh, for today. I've got Bart Miller. He is the Vilas Distinguished Achievement Professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. If you don't know Bart, his story is going to be fascinating. He has touched, worked on, inspired, been involved in things that you have heard of, and uh, we'll get into that. But he is also a uh, father and a husband and an author. Uh, he's even a grandfather. He's a pilot. He's a teacher, skier, woodworker, cyclist. He's an all-around, uh, you know, very interesting guy. And I'm excited to get deeper into his story. I got the privilege of, of talking with him earlier this year and learning uh, some of the things I did not know or part of his background. And I will look forward to him expounding upon that today. So welcome to the show, Bart. Glad to be here. So, uh, conversation. Bart, yeah, let's, you know, we'll, we'll sort of back up since you and I did talk previously and, and uh, talk a little bit more about uh, sort of your origin story. I always joke about cybersecurity people have a backstory like all superheroes. Where are you from? I grew up in Southern California, so halfway between Disneyland and Knott's Berry Farm, both geographically and I guess philosophically. And then uh, uh, you uh, are now in Wisconsin, I believe. And I am been... Wisconsin. Um, and you've been there for quite some time. And I mean, you and I were talking about this. I remember uh, how long have you been at the University of Wisconsin-Madison? I came here in 1984. So that's... Yeah. So it's 39 years going on 40. And I, and as I know, we, as we go through sort of your story, all during that time, you've touched all kinds of commercial projects. And, you know, there's people who some of them think academia means X, Y, or Z. You're that perfect example of touching so many things, real things in the commercial sector, as well as teaching in academia. You've had your foot in both sort of both areas. I mean, is that safe to say? It is work, you know, trying to bridge from the research side to work with a company and see your software in the real world. Is, is a lot of fun. Just writing papers just sounds really boring to me. Yeah, I, I noticed also that we share something else in our uh, in our background that you are an Eagle Scout, I am as well, so. Was, oh, fantastic, congratulations on that. It's uh, a lot of work. It, it is, it is, and it, it's all these years later, it's still a, it's still a meaningful uh, meaningful thing. I'm still volunteering uh, today with the organization. I've got, I've got boys, my own boys in the program, so that's um, always cool to see. Well, let's talk about some of the early, early years. What did you, you know, I, I'm always curious where technology intersected with people before even graduating high school, if it did, you know, where it did and what your interests were at that, at that stage of your life. Well, I started programming my freshman year in high school. And, and you have to realize that's way back in the dark ages, 1970, where mainframes and reel-to-reel and -reel tape drives you see in the movies were the thing. And so started actually programming a Wang 360 programmable calculator. We punched out the program and these little cards and made it do things. And, and, and our favorite thing was to make the device misbehave and go into unpredictable modes of behavior where you start freaking out. So, you know, even on a programmable calculator, you have your hacking opportunities. And then uh, I started programming in, in high school. We used the computer at the local community college because nobody had computers, right? And Oh yeah, this is the time period where where people are prognosticating 
you know, computers in people's homes. Some people had made some famous statements that turned out to be quite laughable now about people. Why would they have a computer in their house? Right, 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 right. No, can't ever imagine that happening. So it was, uh, I programmed on this thing called an IBM 1130 mini computer. And it was uh, 32 K bytes of memory and 128 K disk drive. And we wrote assembly language and we wrote a lot of assembly language. And we learned how to hand patch assembly language. and. We even wrote a, my, my buddy and I, who still a good friend of mine to this day, he's the guy that invented the digital certificate, another good person to put on your show. He and I wrote a, a basic compiler in assembly language and sold it to IBM while we were in high school for $2,000. Oh, man, that's awesome. That's super cool. Well, so, I mean, that, that that's, sort of uh, says it right there. You get an early, early interest in it, start cutting your teeth on it. What did you decide to pursue after, as far as degree work after high school? Well, the really lucky thing was after I graduated high school, I got a programming job. Oh, you and, did? And I got a job, and this is totally in line with the thing, I got a job programming embedded systems and control systems for Beckman Instruments, uh, which was in Southern California. And I worked for them for summers and holidays through college, and even full-time five months after I finished my undergrad before I took up traveling for grad school. And designed, uh, the biggest thing I designed was a distributed system, distributed control system that ran Shell's largest refinery in Houston, and the same control system ran uh, IBM's largest office building in Phoenix. And so got my hands on that. And actually, fun fact, one of my math libraries from that time for the Intel 8080 used, got used in the Viking Mars lander in the gas chromatograph mass spectrometer. So I have software on Mars. Not many people can claim, can claim that. And, uh, and you've jumped to my, my other question, which is where control systems. So you've got an early nexus, at least, uh, I'm sure, like everybody else, cybersecurity and control systems were not converged as far as discussions or thought processes. Uh, at one point, they do though. You know, so I'm kind of curious. You've got early exposure to both sort of both sectors, and and uh, at some point, I know you've done work in the you know the area where those things cross. But so what? The, what you you went and got a computer computer science degree, if I'm not mistaken? Yes, yes, uh, bachelor's, master's, PhD, the whole. What kind of things did you end up? You know, were you focusing on any particular area or interested in anything in, in, in specifically? And, and was, was there still a control systems, you know, nexus with your work at that time or or not not for, for that? No, I was, I was doing stuff in distributed systems at the time. And one of the things I did part of my PhD research was we came up with the idea, which is now pretty common, called process migration, which is you have a program that's running, a process. And the question is, can you take that program while it's running and move it from one host to the other and just let it keep running? And, and so that was an idea that had been talked about a lot. People were thinking about load balancing, failure recovery, and things like that. And we wrote, we did the first implementation of that as part of my PhD work. Yeah, and that sort of speaks to the, the people who care about resiliency and keeping systems up no matter what. That's sort of primordial steps right, right there in that sort of area. Right. I mean, reliability is everything. You know, you're, if you're trying to move a process while it's executing, you got to think at every stage. Where is it going to fail, you know, at the different stages? And then, you know, can you fail forward or do you have to fail backwards and at each at each stage? And how do, you, how do you recover? So you get exactly one instance of the program running eventually. Yeah. Any interesting stories coming out of that, that work? Well, we were running on a brand new uh, processor called the Z8000. This is when the very first 16-bit, we graduated from the, six, from the 8-bit to the 16-bit computer in Scilog. Still a company out there, they're not big came up with uh, uh, with this computer and we we're 
starting to use it in our network, and we discovered that the virtual memory didn't work. They had just done it wrong, and the program couldn't take a page fault without, you couldn't always recover from a page fault. So we, we assume a program can run these days, you can reference memory, it's not there, it stops, the operating system brings the page into memory, we continue it. But the first computer that did that couldn't take a page fault correctly. It would actually try to write to memory, think it wrote to memory, and then it would get the page fault. So it would lose, it would lose data. And so we actually had to build a computer with two processors. One processor would run the program. When it got a page fault, we'd actually yank the hold line on the bus, which would freeze the CPU, basically stop its clock. And I would just kind of do that at the moment. And then the second computer would actually fix up memory and bring the page in and then unsuspend the first computer. So we had to use two computers to fix, to make this work. And Zilog, two years later, had it all fixed, but we had to go move forward with our research. So in the kind of work you're doing, in, in, and obviously that's, you could say that's cybersecurity, or you could say it's certainly related, meaning a perpetrator forcing something you know, to memory. Obviously, there's plenty of exploits where people did things like that. Were you at all thinking cybersecurity at the time, or is it really more about these technologies and how they function in cybersecurity as a, as a focus area or, or some of the product companies that, you know, that came in and worked with you guys? When did cybersecurity come, in, come and go on that path? Well, I mean, cybersecurity has always been a part of the thinking. Any operating system person has to worry about my programs running with my files, and I don't want your program running and your, to touch my program or my files if I, if I don't want it to. So we're constantly thinking about, and, and when you're moving, you know, the, there was a whole evolving trust model of if I'm moving a program from one computer to the other, I have to trust that other computer. So you have to think about what the trust model is. And, and the distributed systems at that time you assume that all the computers in your data center that are running that are uh, running in your system all had exactly the same trust, and there was no isolation. Right. And we were, and so we were worried about the boundary around that system, but inside we weren't. But you know, as we've gone on, we we really needed finer grains because you know the idea of having trust everything with an environment can be fatal. I mean, just look what happened with with the folks at Maersk who got hit with not patching. Yeah, and the rise of the term, you know, zero zero trust, uh, you know, and, and all sorts of discussions going on about that. But yeah, you're right. Back at some point, I, somebody had this great analogy. It was like an M and M. These networks, hard hard shell, maybe that's giving some people probably some latitude. They didn't even have a hard shell. But let's say the perimeter had some protections, but the soft center, everything inside. If you were inside, boy, yeah, everything was there. And flat networks, of course, like no network segmentation, all those things. You don't have to go back too far to, you know, to to find those sorts of things. We actually, when we teach, we like to use, I like the M&M one, but we use the term deep fried security, crispy on the outside and soft and juicy on the inside. <laughs> and we always ask our students, you know, of course, security should be like an onion, right? And so I always ask, you know, we always go to our students go, um, security should be like an onion. And, and I go, you know why? And then people go, oh, because it's in layers. I go, no, because it makes you cry. <laughs> <laughs> I did not see that coming. I love it. It's too true in too many cases. So over the years, then, what kinds of projects um, have you been building? Well, actually, why don't you characterize that a little bit? Some people don't realize and, and how many com real-world commercial things that uh, that professors and sometimes graduate students and students are pulled into. And you've had a, a lot of activity uh, around globally, I believe, uh, yeah. with, with real commercial application things. How does that happen? I think that might be an interesting insight. And that might also inspire some people to say, what can I bring to a university? What can I ask of a university? I think that could be a little bit of public service opportunity here that there could be listeners who didn't realize they could, what kind of projects they could bring to a university. Well, you know, it starts out with what your goal is. And 
you know, if, if your goal is to produce something that's useful and works, and then if you're willing to take a little bit of extra energy to make it work, then it's a little bit, you build it and people will come. So, you know, we, we, were, we were building tools for doing monitoring of, of supercomputer programs, another hat that I wear, and high-performance computing. And we were building tools that were, you can monitor the performance, you could trace them and then get all sorts of information. And, you know, you show somebody this will work on the real application. We, we did one where we showed a way of tracing faults. You can use it for security monitoring too, or failure monitoring. And we had something, this funny technique called self-propelled instrumentation. It's kind of like a virus you drop in your program and it permeates through and traces all the transactions. And it worked really well. And we wanted to test it somewhere. And we happened to be at a conference. I met somebody from Disney, from Disney.com, their online service. And they had a they had a funny failure. They had this server farm with like a couple of thousand hosts. And every once in a while, like once a day, one of the hosts would go from thousands of transactions per second to two transactions per second. And they had no explanation why. And we were looking at exactly these kind of intermittent failures. And so they were so desperate, I guess, that they allowed this flaky academic group to deploy our trace monitoring system on their whole backend Disney.com e-commerce site. And we let it run for a couple of days and we caught a couple of these and we found it and debugged it. So it's just a case that we had something that worked and nobody else did. And either because people were motivated or maybe just, I like the term desperate when they come to us, that they ended up using this, this technology. And so how did that come about? Did you publish something on that tool and they read about it and called you? Or did they call and just say, hey, we have a problem and based on reputation, is there anything you know, you'd recommend or is there anything you could do for us? How did that really consummate? Well, we wrote a paper on this. Okay. One of my PhD students and I wrote a paper on this. And you know, I, I always have my students present the paper. So he presented at the conference. And, and of course, the really interesting stuff at conferences always happens at the coffee breaks when everybody talks to each other. And this person came up and said, oh, you found this kind of failure. Let me tell you about the kind of failure we have. Right? You know, and then we talked for 10 minutes, and then two minutes turned into two hours, yeah. and it turned into a plan and a visit, and they let us loose on their, on their cluster. And so it, it, are people bringing things, you know, as far as your program goes, are people bringing things regularly from the commercial sector, wanting, wanting you guys to do things? And, and any industrial uh, ones of, of recent years that you've been pulled into? I think you and I talked about something having to do with shipping shipping containers. I don't remember the entire details, but I remember I wrote I wrote a note down like to ask Bart about that. Well, that one's a longer and more complicated story because we, uh, myself and my colleague, Alyssa Hyman, and I developed this methodology for doing vulnerability assessment on a system, in-depth vulnerability assessment, not running tools, but a structured way an analyst can go through a system and find vulnerabilities, not on of the ones, not on a list of vulnerabilities you already know, but finding new vulnerabilities in the code. And we call it first principles vulnerability assessment, PVA. And we have been doing this really successfully. And we got the idea of, you know, we looked at the container shipping yard and saw tens of thousands of colored boxes piled up with serial numbers and wondered, well, there's no paperwork with any of those boxes. If you scramble the database, that's a lot of that's a lot of moving boxes around, figuring out what the heck's in them and trying to figure out where they go. And so long story short, we actually convinced the company that made the software that controlled container shipping yards that runs half runs 40% of the container terminals in the world to give us their source code. And that's another long, that's another long story, four years for that thought process to finish. So, and then we found a ton of vulnerabilities in their software. They got a little punch drunk with all the vulnerabilities. You know, these are, these are own the system, control anything, exfil anything kind of vulnerabilities yeah. in their system. We, we gave them pat, we gave them fixes for them too, because we never give anybody. When we find a vulnerability, um, we only consider a vulnerability if we can if we can build an exploit. 
We never have putative vulnerabilities. They have to be real, actual demonstrable vulnerabilities. And then we always give we always give a repair, or at least our suggestions for remediation for the vulnerability. And they were very excited about that. And after a while, they said help, and they and we kind of flew over. And the company is called Total SoftBank, very professional organization in Busan, Korea. They flew us over, and we took their whole staff offline and did a week of training with them on secure coding techniques and and up their game. They eventually won a $50 million contract because they were the only ones to su- to survive a red team from the company they're trying to get the contract from as a result of that. So we we're very proud. So that was just that was just a natural thing, but it took a lot of time to convince the company. Yeah. Well, I yeah, that's the crown jewels, right? Um, that isn't easily done, but it's uh, I love it as an example of something that I think is important. Is you know people want to debate this uh, nature of is attack X or incident X is it is it an attack on an industrial system? If it's an attack on an industrial company and they're disrupted and and they're and in the end things they do in the cyber to physical world moving containers is disrupted then it then it was even if you might not have been on a system that specifically was moving something you know through through a pipeline I mean, people ask well, colonial pipeline there are those big cranes carrying multi-ton yeah. metal boxes over big your gantry, head right big gantry cranes massive cranes. Right. So there's yeah. besides just scrambling the database, there's some pretty seriously bad things you could do. Well, tons of actual cyber to physical attacks. Yeah, but and for sure, right? I mean, in a shipyard, but but also if you affect something in their business, like Colonial, if you affect their billing system and they decide to not run the operating technology, it, whether it was intentional or not, it ends up being an incident that does affect the operating technology. And so I was just thinking there's another example. And, and it seems like splitting hairs to me to say, was an attack on an operating technology? Because there always there are people wanting to debate, you know, what you know, how many attacks are happening and what kind of attacks. And in the end of the day, if you're running real physical systems, which is so many different companies, if you broadly count, you know, heating and air conditioning and, you know, and uh, and, and and elevators and things, almost every company's got exposure to moving moving things. And you can either attack those directly or you can attack things that uh, where human beings are involved and they end up affecting those systems. And that was just an interesting one. If you lost track of of what where all those containers were and what was in them, you really would sort of bring a huge operation to a halt. In, in, right. And I, 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 what are the, I mean, in, in a major seaport, the number of transactions and things moving around in a day is, is enormous. Well, they, they, you know, it's thousands. I mean, they, these big container yards within two or three days, the entire contents of one of those container yards turns over usually. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know that there's so many things we could explore and I would be, it would be a huge mistake if I didn't ask about fuzzing uh, okay. this conversation. I think that's uh, a term that, that many people are familiar with, although maybe, maybe we do define it for those that are listening that might not know what it is. Uh, but those that do know may not know its origin story. And I think that's a fascinating thing to, that we, we just, we just have to talk about. Well, okay, let's start with the origin story. And, you know, as, as I like to say, uh, I share this with uh, Snoopy. It started on a dark and stormy night. And so it's, it was literally, it was the fall of 1988. And it was, there was a massive Midwest thunderstorm going on. And where it lights up the sky. And it's just, they're really impressive. I love Midwest thunderstorm. And it's just pouring rain. And I'm logged on to my backstation, little desktop Unix machine, pre, 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 pre Linux world. This was over my 9600 baud modem with the acoustic coupler, my phone plugged into the acoustic coupler. And when you're on a day like that, or if you're just in a bad rural area and you're just typing, you get a lot of noisy characters on the line. So you're trying to type to expand your shell. So there's no windows. I'm on my dumb ADM 3A 
24 by 80 character screen, character terminal. You want more windows, you got to buy more terminals and put them next to each other. So I'm logged on there, typing commands to the shell, and there's noise from the storm, electrical noise, wet, I don't know, whatever it is. And so race to type something sensible and hit enter before the noise overwhelms your command, and you have to race the line and type it again. And so this is before error correcting modem. The next ones that came out, the 5600 baud, moving all the way up to 56,000 bits per second, that was amazing. But before that, the modems didn't have error correction, which is why we got all the noise. So the weird thing was not that we was getting noise on the line, but that noise is, that was getting his input to the program was crashing program. It was crashing things like compilers and editors and real life common programs. And so, so the idea that this random junk was crashing real programs just stood out. And so I did what any professor did, and I said, oh, I get my students to figure this out. And so um, I was teaching the graduate operating system course that semester, and we always give the students a semester-long research project to work on. They have to write a proposal, carry out the research, get some results, write a report, and present it either in the presentation or poster. So very, so it's a little microcosm. So I handed out. So I said, well, I should have the students study this. And so I figured I need to give it a name. So I tossed around names, and I don't know why, but I came up with the name Fuzz. It just sounded like something, you know, throwing junky, crappy input just sounded like a didn't sound very poetic, I guess. And so I didn't use that. So we wrote a so wrote a spec for something called the Fuzz Generator, which is the program that generated random output. And you can control the amount of output. You can control whether it had new lines or no new lines. Control whether it had null bytes or no null bytes. You control whether this is in the pure ASCII days, way, way before Unicode. You control whether you use the 7-bit ASCII or the whole 8-bit ASCII. All these things which we were guessing had legitimate possibilities. And three groups took up the project. And their challenge was to write the fuzz generator, which wasn't that hard, and then to test as many Unix utility programs, just common programs, command line programs on Unix, as you can on many different platforms that they could. And two of the groups tried and got no crashes whatsoever. Don't I, I wish I had, I've tried to find the files, I've tried to go to backup pages and find their code to figure out why they went wrong, but I, I don't know. But uh, Brian Stowe and Lars Fredrickson, who were the, other, uh, the third pair of students, did it, and they were able to crash a quarter to a third of the program, and just with random input. So, so if you're going to me more intellectually what fuzz testing is, it's random input with a simple, a simplistic oracle. I think the hardest thing about writing test programs in any testing domain is not generating the test inputs, but generating the output verification, the oracle that said, did this program generate the right output based on the test? Input? And we totally finessed the problem. We didn't realize that's what we did at the time. We didn't realize. But which, by having an oracle, which is the program crashed or didn't crash, or crashed or hung, those are equivalent, or didn't crash. If it didn't crash, I mean, you could print out the Gettysburg address in Serbian. If if you were a C compiler and I give you a program to compile, instead of a x86 executable, you print out the Gettysburg address in Serbian. By the measure of fuzz testing, the program is correct. It did not crash. So as long as you don't crash. And the fact that we used a really dumb oracle made applying this to lots of software and applying quickly to software and finding things that were directly security related became a much more, it became a likely thing. And whole companies have been created out of this. I mean, that, that term is uh, became a term in, in the industry. And what were the steps of that, the evolution of that? Did you publish something and, and people started taking, sort of taking a look at this? I mean, what was the step from you just doing that and, and then three student groups picking it up to 
you know, to where it is today, I just, I loved it. I mean, I, I didn't realize that, that that's where, it, you know, where it had come from. I, I've heard the term for years from a variety of colleagues that have either, you know, at one point, a couple people directly involved with a company, that's what they were doing exclusively. And, and then people who've talked about utilizing that sort of thing. I don't remember the first time I heard it, but it's, it's been a while now. There was, uh, let's say, a ridiculous amount of frustration. Um, it took a long time. So remember, this is, this is the 1980s, around the same time as the Robert Morris Jr. worm. Um, did a stack smashing attack and took out all took out ninety percent of the computers on the internet back when there was about two thousand sites on the internet. But we took we turned off the internet. That was fun. Uh, I like to do that now just for a day and see what happens. That would be even more. Fun. So we wrote it. So the students did a good job, and you know I worked very closely with them, and we got it. And then they wrote their project report, and then we went back and rewrote it as more like a conference style paper to make it more formal and academic and spent another semester dotting our I's and crossing our T's, covering all the cases, wrote a very nice paper and submitted it to, I can, I can say now, IEEE Transactions on Software Engineering. And uh, they rejected it. The reviews were terrifying. One reviewer suggested that I leave the field of computers. Um, wow. So, I mean, you know, basically you're just throwing crap at a program and, See what happens. That's not computer science. That's not and, elegant and sophisticated. What are you doing? Well, I mean, what you know. To, to be fair, we, we we wrote the test and we tested programs. We got crashes. We debugged every crash and we categorized the crashes and showed the categories of That's behaviors and programs. Yeah. That category. And so, besides having an interesting testing model, which has been pretty durable and augmented, there's been so much good new work, fuzz testing beyond what we've done. So. All you folks out there who are listening to this at some point who have been doing fuzz testing, thank you for carrying on doing way beyond what we did in our early work. But we just offended this testing and software engineers of where's your formal model, where's your, I don't know what all they had. And, you know, and I was just a assistant professor and worried about getting tenure if every paper counted. And I was going, maybe I will move to Silicon Valley and give up this academic thing. And so eventually, you know, a couple of years later, the editors and the reviewers at CACM, which is a big technical journal for the ACM, but the, now it's much more of a general interest, but it was very technical in those days. They accepted and published it, and I was, I'm very appreciative that they did. And as a result of technically uh, publishing it, nothing happened. I mean, it was like a dull thud. I mean, people, turned out people in some of our intelligence agencies picked it up really early and ran with it. I found that out many years later. But uh, everybody else just ignored it. And so a few years later in like 94, I teaching the class again, I gave out an assignment saying, let's, I, and we called it Fuzz Revisited. And so we were going to test more programs. We we're going to test more platforms. We we're going to revisit programs we had already tested, but on newer platforms. And we also text, tested this time the expert based applications we were testing. We tested a bunch of stuff. And I had a couple of groups working on it. And the accumulation of their command line testing, their GUI testing, and then testing some network protocols and other things we wrote together as a paper. And, and that got published more easily. People weren't quite so phobic on the idea. And, and that was really a much more, and again, we, we debugged every failure, we categorized everything, we compared the results from the new and old study and all that. And that got published and still not much happened. So I was on sabbatical the following year at Stanford. So I was in bicycling distance to DEC and Silicon Graphics and Hewlett Packard and IBM. And I went to all these companies and gave talks and tried to get everybody excited about this. And 
half the people in the room were sitting there going, oh my God, my software, it's got bugs. You know, if they would have all had laptops in 1995, they would have all been hacking the repairs and pushing up and hitting the pull request out for the, right, right there and then, but they didn't. They're all just sitting there ready to get back to their office all nervous. The other half of their room went, I don't care about that bug. It's not on my list of things to do. Why are you bothering me with all these annoying bugs? And so it's really interesting to see the different, really two different camps. And people who said, it's my software. This is a craft. I've got flaws in my software. I got to fix them. The other one said, well, you know, it's not on my deliverable list for this week. So, eh, you know, what's another bug? Plus or minus 25, 30% of my code programs crashing. Plus or minus. So somewhere in there, it started to take off and people started to use it more and more. And we kept publishing papers. We did we, we did a study on Mac OS because all these were, which is really just Mac OS X is really just free BSD and mock distributed network uh, processing thrown in and the, and the Mac windowing system. So we tested Mac OS and their GUI based programs were really easy to crash. So their command line stuff was pretty reliable. But actually one of the things that caught the most attention was in that fuzz revisited study in 1995, for the first time, we tested GNU and Linux. They weren't, they were kind of separate parallel, separate and parallel tracks. They were just getting to be real enough that we tested them. And it turned out that these flaky open source folks that were writing the software compared to IBM and digital and all these other companies, they were much more reliable. They had a much lower failure rate by the fuzz testing criteria than the commercial. Commercial systems, the best ones were crashing, you know, more than twice the rate of the open source software. So it was the first time there was kind of an academically blessed official measurement to say open source software for some reason can be, in fact, is more reliable by these measures than commercially written closed source software. Hey everybody, Derek Harp here. And I just want to take a brief moment to thank three companies that make this podcast series possible. The first company is Waterfall Security Solutions. And they led the charge this year for the podcast and they specifically sponsored it from their podcast, the Industrial Security Podcast. So check that out. That's a great linkage to an entire other series of over 100 episodes. They had their anniversary recently, focused on control system cybersecurity. And they were supported this year by KPMG and Fortinet. We could not do this without them. These companies not only have supported this podcast series this year, but they've supported CSA since its very early days eight years ago. And we're entirely grateful to the teams and dedicated professionals at Waterfall Security Solutions, KPMG, and Fortinet. That is fascinating. I mean, I, I guess I'm, in my mind, I'm, I'm taking a guess at why that is. You know, there's a, a lot of discussion right now about open source and all the inherent issues that do come with it, but that's a pro. If there are cons for sure, that's, a, that's an interesting pro. Do you think that's still true today? We redid our study just a couple of years ago just to see, you know, after, there's so much been, as I said, there's been so much great fuzz research and coverage guided fuzzing, you have all these, you know, gray box fuzzers and you have mutational, you know, all this stuff, terminology that's, you know, that's been developed since we've done our early work. And we wanted to see if just the old fashioned un black box, unstructured uh, generational fuzzing. So now we have terminology for what we do. We didn't have that terminology when we did it. And we found out it still was very effective. And, and we did test, you know, we did test among other things, Mac OS and, and we, and so open source is still as reliable uh, more than, than closed source by these measures for these programs. That's great. I think this seems like a really good segue to another topic that I know you, 
you work in and talk about, and I think our industry, there are people obviously waking up to this as we'll talk about it, you know, secure coding, you know, code secure by design and secure development lifecycle. And these are terms uh, so not taking away from the few people, not few, I'm going to be generous. The people that absolutely get that and are working on it, there's a bunch of people that aren't in the industrial sector, both users who don't know to ask whether the software they're using had anything around it like that, uh, and people creating things uh, in the industrial space without any of those disciplines in play. And so I thought that might be an important thing for us to touch on that because it's critical. And sort of I can see where you, wh why you've ended up there. I mean, fuzzing and the people half the room that didn't really care that there were some bugs, we have a legacy of building software with architects and security software engineers who, for whatever reason, they didn't, they didn't care about it, you know whether there were imperfections in what they were in the in what they were creating. And now we care a lot more societally. We care a lot more about this. So, what is your sort of current viewpoints on secure coding and, and all the other terms that sort of are in that that bundle? You know, it's a it's a concern that it's not taught widely enough. It's not integrated enough into our curriculums. If you look at, you know, control systems are really interesting because oftentimes it's some engineering company. They're making generators, they're making motors, they're making, you know, farm equipment, they're making something, and they need somebody to write the software. So they look around for the youngest member of the team. They go, you, Susie or Joe, you just graduated. How many comp sci courses did you take? Three? Okay, you're the programmer. And so even in the top software companies, um, people graduated with bachelor's or master's in computer science don't get exposure to secure coding as a regular part of the curriculum. And so, and those are the most, those are high trained professionals and, and they have to get that in professional training within their organization or, but you, you go down to places that are making a device and putting software in that device, which is just about everything. There's, there's software and computers and underwear now, God help us. And the smaller the company, the less likely there's any trained computer scientists and certainly no trained security practitioners in the organization. No secure development lifecycle, no secure development protocols, no code reviews for security, all these things that you know we might want to see in, in that environment. So it is a worrisome thing, which is so we started out, um, you know, I mentioned that we do in-depth vulnerability assessment. That's what we did on that container shipping software. We do that on lots of environments. We've done it for a lot of science projects under, under the supervision of the National Science Foundation. Uh, we did it in the maritime world under NATO, funding for NATO. We, we did Wireshark, which is very well-known network monitoring software used for all sorts of things, forensics, monitoring, things like that. We did that under funding from Homeland Security and Department of Justice. So we did Chrome as a project for Google. As we started doing these vulnerability assessments early on, we've been doing it for a long time now, we started seeing some common coding errors that people were making. And so we started putting together a few slides just to share with people. And we started seeing more and more of that. And we started organizing our thoughts on that into different categories. And eventually it's grown now into a full undergraduate course curriculum. So we have, we have our introduction to software security course that goes from the design to the coding to the testing to the vulnerability assessment, to the tools you use, to the vulnerability, to vulnerability management. So take them through. So, and we have those materials online. There's a, we have a website that's a free and open website with text chapters and videos and downloadable exercises and virtual machine. So anybody out there, okay, I want to know how to deal with a cross-site scripting. I want to know how to deal with a buffer overflow. I want to know how to deal with a, a file name or path traversal injection attack. I want to do, pick your, 
whatever it is. I want to I want to know about intro to fuzzing. I want to know how to use AFL American Fuzzy Lock. You know, where we have. I want to know how to do vulnerability assessment. I want to know how to run a dependency analysis tool to get a software bill of materials on my code. What should um, listener Google to find those, Bart? If you do introduction to software security and Miller and Hyman, H-U-Y-M-A-N-N, or uh, you'll, you'll find those. Okay. Or they Google me and my email address will show up and send me an email and I'll point you at it. And so, and we even have an instructor's page that you have to be teaching a college class to get access to that we give them. We teach, since we got the videos and text chapters all online and free, the students do this stuff after hours and during class, we do interactive, active, called active learning exercises where we run through different exercises they can try and work with them on the solutions. And we we have those exercises plus quizzes and things like that and answers to the quizzes for instructors who want to teach this stuff. We want to see more people be introduced to software security. We want to, we want to take the barriers down. I'm a terrible business person. They're free. So, you know, I'm not going to make any, we're not going to make any money doing this. Maybe if we get enough video views on Vimeo, we might get a few dollars, but I don't think that's going to happen. So um, it's just out there for people to use. That's awesome. And, uh, you know, from our nonprofit standpoint, that's a pretty cool thing that you're doing that and uh, and helpful to, you know, helpful to the community. You know, I think I had this fantasy that more recent graduates of computer science degrees and with programming background were getting a heavy dose of this as some part of their curriculum. And is that just still not yet? That's not yet the case. Is that what you were saying? It seems that way. You know, we produce these materials in very small modules. Videos are typically between five and 15 minutes long. They're usually on the shorter side. And so what I'd love to see is, hey, you're teaching the intro database class. Take our uh, SQL injection. Take our intro to injections and SQL injection. You're in it for 17 minutes. Put that on your website for your students to watch. You're yeah. teaching the introduction to operating system class. You're programming in C. Take our section on buffer overflows and pointer errors and watch that one. I mean, you know, there's so many of these, you know, you're taking a, you know, you're taking a web class, you know, okay, so we got cross-site scripting, cross-site request forgeries, redirection attacks, secure transactions. Take our, take any of these, paste the URL into your curriculum and, and uh, into your syllabus and just let people watch that stuff. It's for free. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's essentially we need to create a, a, an entire new, uh, generation of folks that are building things and they're thinking about security from the moment they start building it, and that just isn't isn't how we ended up here. But it, I'm 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 certainly a big believer that that's part of the future. I mean, I mean, thinking about security from the beginning is so critical. We get when we do these vulnerability assessments, we tend to get called in when there's an existing code base, and then you know we're doing a vulnerability assessment right now of a of a science gateway that does access to high high-performance computing and science, scientific devices. I can't say which one it is because we're in the middle of it. And there are some serious architectural issues with this software. And it's going to be, sometimes you find things and you can just fix it, but there's going to be some painful reassessment when they get, when, when they, when they, because we're just about ready to start delivering our first vulnerability report just now. And it's going to be awkward. As long as war and peace. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, what uh, what excites you about the uh, the future? If there's any anti-impact to sort of the industrial sector, uh, anything you're optimistic or excited about, that's great. But it can also be, you know, in, in general, in the technology and software sector. Well, I think, you know, in the industrial sector, it's funny that the industrial computing sector has become everything. You know, when we have a computer in our underwear, there, you know, what's left? You know, we talked we talked about Dick Cheney's pacemaker. 
that brought a lot of attention to medical devices. Yeah. And right, rightfully so. And he didn't always say things I agreed with, but he said some things that were very sensible. And one of them was being worried about his pacemaker. And so medical devices, we're seeing them. Uh, we do home automation. We do vehicles. We do, there's so many, there's so many computers. And recently, so one of the things we've been looking at most recently is ransomware and firmware. And you might say, why those are just two wares? Why are they randomly put together? And you can actually think of your desktop or laptop computer as an industrial control device. It's got like a dozen computers in it. And of course, there's a CPU, which we all know and love and runs on the board. But there's, there's at least another, one more CPU on the board running power and system control for the board. And you, you almost certainly know that the disk controller is a simple processor that run, running your hard drive. And your NIC, your network interface card or chip, is a processor. But your screen has a CPU, separate CPU that runs your screen. And it's got firmware. Your keyboard has another computer, has another processor that's running the keyboard with its own firmware. Your battery in your laptop has a CPU with its own. And so, you know, we can look at the enormous penetration of computers into everything we do in the world. You know, you, you buy a you buy a desk lamp, you buy whatever it is, and it's got a computer in it. But though it sounds odd to say, your computer has computers in it, and not just the one you're thinking about. And so when you have a computer in your battery, and somebody can hack your battery, what are the odds that in that battery company, there's a programmer who wrote the firmware that took more than one or two computer classes of that many? You're saying by a, by a multitude of companies, right, creating internet of things, technologies, underwear, and everything else, the sophistication of I would say probably the Belker was the preponderance of evidence within most of these companies are, it's like, how fast can we get this out and get it to market? Not any sort of proper process. Uh, I mean, the good news for security practitioners is that there's no end in sight. Yeah. The bad news for the rest of us is there's no end in sight. I mean, if you look, you know, I was, I was, I was looking at the bachelor's degree production in computer majors in the United States. And, you know, there's something called the Talby survey that the ACM, Association of Computing Machinery, does every year. And there's been some increase, noticeable increase in, in degree, because these majors are very popular. People got the message that this is not a fad. This is here to stay for a while. But the growth is nowhere close to the number of computing jobs, number of programming jobs out there. So people are, that's why people go to coding camps and get High-paying jobs, people, you know, come out with certificates or minors from undergraduate in computing, when they with something else, and they get jobs. But we're cra- we have way too many computing jobs, and we don't, and we're not increasing the number of proficient programmers, let alone the number of security proficient programmers. Yeah, that narrows the field, and a field that's too narrow, and it narrows it even further. <laughs> it does, and so you know, maybe we're going to have to have ChatGPT writing all our code. We just hope that the Models that learned on were secure ones and not credit code. I've asked Chad GPT a couple of interesting questions, and sometimes it gets them surprisingly right, but sometimes it gets them distressingly wrong. And uh, as a pilot, I asked it some basic piloting skills questions, and it got one of them right and one of them quite wrong. So I don't, I'm not, I'm, I'm a little more facetious, but I'm not hopeful that's going to solve my security problems in the yeah, future. Yeah. Well, gosh, there's so many things. It's, uh, it's, it's really cool to have you on the show, especially being the the father of the term fuzzing and the whole the whole thing that became an industry. Um, it's it's not often uh, that one gets to meet the sort of the 
where those little nucleus events moments are, the whole things come from. And there, there it was. I'm, I'm so glad that you got to share that story with our listeners and uh, uh, I appreciate that. So I'm, I'm just wrapping up with uh, Dr. Uh, Barton Miller, the VLAS Distinguished Achievement Professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And uh, it's been a real pleasure. If you're up for it, we'll end the, uh, end the show as I normally do with the uh, Pivot questionnaire. Okay, sure, sure, I can, I can try that. So this is, uh, for those, if you haven't listened to us before, I always end the show with the same set of 10 questions. And I've borrowed these from a show called Inside the Actor's Studio. It was hosted by James Lipton for decades. He has passed on, and I believe the show may still be going somewhere, but it was syndicated in over 100 countries. And he borrowed this same 10 questions from a French show, hence the name Pavot Questionnaire. And um, so I just, uh, somewhere along the way, decided to end my show with the same, uh, the same 10 questions. So if you're ready, uh, Bart, we'll, uh, we'll give it a whirl. What sure. is your favorite word? Well, my newest favorite word is grandchild. Congrats. What is your least favorite word? Bland. Um, I like cooking. What turns you on, either creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Rifting with other people to develop new ideas. Just that what? whole bouncing ideas off each other process where you get something more than each of you brought to the table. What turns you off? Uh, people not willing to say they don't know. So nodding their head when they don't really understand. And what is your favorite curse word? I don't think it's very interesting. It's just, damn it. What sound or noise do you love? That's easy. Airplane engine. What sound or noise do you hate? Uh, that on hold music. What profession other than your own would you like to attend? I think I'd like to be a food anthropologist. What profession would you not like to do? A cashier. And if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Uh, you're at the right place. Love it. I think a couple of the answers there I had not heard before. Some there's patterns that develop, but uh, food anthropologists, I just have to ask, what does a food anthropologist do? You know, I, I love the fact that uh, potatoes are fundamental to, to Irish cooking, but they're American. Tomatoes are, tomatoes are fundamental to Italian cooking. You can imagine tomato sauce, possibly not tomato sauce. That's North American. Blueberries are so fundamental, blueberry pie, that's European. You know, oranges, what's, what's better than a California, Florida, or even Valencia, Spain orange? Well, that's Asian. Uh, peanut butter, peanuts came from Africa. You know, it's just, we have this phenomenal movement of food with the movement of people over millennia. And I love travel, I love food, cooking. And so just, if I could spend all my time just studying that, that would be probably enough to drag me away from security. Well, we, you know, I'm thinking in terms of my mind, I, I saw learning when I was a kid about continental drift. It sounds like there was culinary drift. And if that isn't a term, I just coined it. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, here, here's a question. One of the very first foods to leave North America and go back to Europe with the first explorer was the turkey. Huh? So Europeans have been eating turkey for 500 years, even though it's indigenous to America. And, so your, southern, your, and your southern pork ribs... Hey, that's the Europeans brought in. There were no pigs in America before the Europeans. So just this whole mixture of how things travel yeah. and the ingredients we've lost that people are re uh, rediscovering. I just, it's, it's a lot of fun. That's awesome. Awesome. Well, hey, thank you, Dr. Miller, for uh, taking your time today to, to spend time with us, but also for what you do in the industry and have been doing for quite some time. And you know, we all benefit from that. And I share some of your passions for we can make things better tomorrow, but you're you're doing something about it and you know, one one student at a time. So thank you for, for all that and the free resources. That's also I didn't know you had those. So um, 
hopefully people will uh, will will seek those out. So from behalf of the CSA community and society in general, thank you for all that. And thank you for this great podcast. I really enjoyed listening to it and I'm happy to be on it this time. All right, well, take care and we'll uh, talk again uh, soon. Hi everyone, this is Derek Harp, the founder and chairman of the Control System Cybersecurity Association International, or as we call it, just CSA. CSA is a 501c6 nonprofit workforce development association dedicated to helping grow, support, and sustain the professionals charged with the cybersecurity of control systems. We're specifically talking about those systems that have pumps and valves and actuators, real cyber to physical moving parts, and control nearly every aspect of our modern connected industries. Thank you for tuning into the podcast. It is my hope you find it inspirational or motivating or revealing or informative, and perhaps at times even a little entertaining. Take care and be well.